Welcome to the message podcast for Church of the Nazarene. We invite you to subscribe for updates and new episodes. You can also search for our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and TuneIn. Make sure you join us each Sunday at 9 a.m. on Facebook Live. Our in-person service times are 9 and 10.30 a.m. We have a campus near Harrisonburg at 1871 Boyers Road and a new campus in East Rockingham at 414 Southeast Side Highway in Elkton. In addition, at our Harrisonburg campus, we have a Spanish campus that meets on Sundays at 11.45 a.m. Check out our website, cotnaz.org, for more information. My name is Jared. I'm the pastor here at the East Rock campus of the Church of the Nazarene. We are one church in multiple locations. Right now, as we're speaking, there's a congregation. Our church is meeting at 1871 Boyers Road, and uh, so we are one church in multiple locations, and that's our vision here at the Church of the Nazarene. And thank you so much for visiting and worshiping with us today. I have a question for you. It's a moment of confession, but I don't think I'm alone in this, so I want you to help me out. You ever find yourself doing this? You're driving down the road. Um, You know, traffic is normal, and if 33 East is in your travel path, normal is a stretch. Uh, But you're, you're driving along, and you're doing okay, and a car goes flying by you, and you go, oh, my goodness, you know, what is wrong with that person? Are they crazy? Like, why are they driving so fast? And so you kind of settle back into your groove, get your podcast fired back up, whatever you're doing. And then you're cruising along, you're watching the clock, and you come up on a slow car. And you're like, doesn't this person know I'm in a hurry? And so you get out and you go by them, and then you get back in the lane. Have you ever done that? Thinking, good grief, what's wrong with this person going slow? Have you ever had those thoughts? Am I alone? Did I just confess, and am I the only one in the room? Why is it that the speed that you're driving is the, really the acceptable speed to be driving? Have you ever noticed that? We traveled on 81 here the other week, and I, like, that's where this came from. It's because you're, people are blazing by you, and you're coming up on people going too slow in your left-hand lane, by the way. Let's just get that accurate. It's my left-hand lane. But have you ever noticed that by nature, we as human beings tend to think that we are the standard? Have you ever noticed that? And as I began to catch myself and do a little confessing before the Lord, I had to ask, is that in effect anywhere else in my life besides just being behind the wheel? Do I tend to think that I'm in the right or that the way I approach things is right in other areas of my life? What about politics? Our world is starkly divided by things like politics or our career or our social status, we tend to be defined and we tend to set our standards as to what we think should be the way. How do we know if we're right? How do we know? If our nature says that the way I do it and the way I think is right, how do we ever know? We need a standard. We need a standard. And that brings us right into our series today, Burning Questions. And so if you're visiting with us, we're taking time this summer to journey through some hard questions together. We understand and we acknowledge, because we're people too, that sometimes it's more easy, it's it's more comfortable, if you will, just to avoid the hard topics. Like nobody really enjoys hard conversations that bring about emotion and feelings and, and dramatic change. But we cannot afford to do that as the people of God, because hard questions are all around us. They're even within us. 
If you read in Scripture, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says this. He says, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Friends, we cannot shy away from the hard questions because the world around us is not shying away from those questions. Last week, as we began our series, we jumped headlong into a really hard question, a really hard question that impacts each and every one of us. And that question was, would a loving God really send someone to hell? Hell is a hard topic that, honestly, I would just as soon not talk about very often because it's real, it's meaningful, it's deep to every one of us. And as we work through this, we look to the Scriptures to see the nature and the character of God. We look through the New Testament a little bit to see what Jesus had to say about what was coming in the end, the judgment and what lay ahead. And we concluded that after our study and prayer that, yes, hell really is a real place. But that hell is a place that is totally void of God's presence. And that's where the torment and the torture resides, is that it's absent of God's presence. If you missed last Sunday, I I would invite you to go back, and if you go to cotnaz.org, that's our church website, if you go to cotnaz.org, in the top right-hand corner, there's a tab that says Watch Listen, and you can listen to how we navigated that very difficult question last week, and I I invite you and I encourage you uh, to go listen there. As we work through that topic, we, we had to face the fact or ask the question of ourselves how we approach the Scriptures, because we must approach the scriptures, the truth of God's word. We must approach that in humility and submit our judgments, our standards to what scripture says. That we need to come humbly to open our hearts before him and have him speak into our hearts and into our lives, giving us guidance, setting our standard, if you will. And that brings us right into this week's question, today's question. And that is, do you actually believe the Bible is true? Do you actually believe the Bible is the Word of God? Have you ever wrestled with this question yourself? Have you ever journeyed with someone that was maybe exploring the faith or reconsidering what they always thought or believed? Have you ever dealt with this question in your own life or in the life of someone you're working with? At face value, it might seem like a pretty easy question. The Bible may have been familiar to you from your childhood. It was always around. It was on the coffee table or on mom and dad's nightstand. It may be so familiar that it's an easy yes. But some of you today might be wrestling with that because this book contains some pretty hard truths, doesn't it? Some of you may be wrestling and saying, no, I I don't know that I do believe. And so we're going to journey together through this topic today. So we're going to begin, what does the world say? What does the world say about the Bible? A survey in 2014 by Pew Research Company indicated that 35% of Americans read the Bible at least once a week, while 45% say they seldom or never read the Bible. What about Christians? What do we say? Christians are divided on how to interpret the Bible. 39% say the Bible is the word of God and should be taken literally. 36% say that it's not to be taken literally or they express another or no answer at all. And 18% view it as a book written by men 
and not by God necessarily. What does your church say? We're the church of the Nazarene. What do we say? What is a foundational doctrine for us? So if you would look at the articles of faith, and that's really the 16 areas, the 16 final doctrines and areas of theology that we stand on as a church. And if you read Article 4, it's talking about the Scriptures, and it says this. It says, We believe in the plenary inspiration of the Holy Scriptures, by which we understand the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments given by divine inspiration, inerrantly revealing the will of God concerning us and all things necessary to salvation, so that whatever is not contained therein is not to be enjoined in the article of faith. Basically, we're saying we believe in the divine inspiration of Scripture contained in the 66 books of the Bible as we have it today, and it contains everything we need for salvation in Christ Jesus. So we see what America says. We see what some Christians may say or how they interact. We see what the church says, but what do you say? What do you say? How would you answer this question if somebody were to ask you at work tomorrow or at school or at where? ever you'll find yourself, how would you answer? If you're like me, you may just say, yeah, I, I believe it's the word of God. I believe it's inspired. I believe it's inerrant. It flawlessly conveys the plan of salvation and what we need to know. Then if that's your answer, there's really three follow-up questions we must answer. Do I engage this book? If I say it's the word of God, do I engage this book as the words of the Lord? Do I allow the truth revealed in this book to shape and transform my life? to set my standards, my speed driving down the road, if you will? Do I shape my life around the principles and the guidelines it contains? Do I cherish this book as a lifeline? There's more questions we must ask. But what do you say today? Do you believe the Bible is the word of God? So how can we unpack this together? How can we work through a challenging question? I want to begin by addressing two areas, and I, it's, it's a moment of confession that there's no way we can cover this topic in depth. So this is a launching point. If you're wrestling, if you want to work through the hard question, this is a launching point, and the conversation can most certainly continue if this finds you in a place today that you want to take another step. But we're going to begin for our time today looking at really two different areas, two different areas of doubt that we encounter pretty frequently in the world as we're questioned. First, the reliability of the content. The reliability of the content. Are the words contained on these pages authentic? Are they reliable? Are they true to what they say they are and when they say they were written? At its core, this is a book. This is ink on paper, right? It's got a cover, pages, ink on paper. It's a book. Is it reliable? Is it authentic? Is it true to what it claims to be? And the second area we're going to look at is the story that the Bible is telling. So it's ink on paper, but it's telling a story. And so we're going to take just brief looks at those two areas today as we journey through this question. So let's jump in. Let's start with a word of prayer, if you would. Bow your heads with me. Lord, we come before you today, and we want to be open to your spirit, Lord. We desire that you would speak into our hearts, Lord, that, that if we doubt the Bible or if, if we don't treat the Bible as a lifeline, Lord God, that you would show that area in our lives. Lord, show us through your word the power of your word today. Lord, we love you today, and we invite you here. In your name we pray. Amen. So let's jump in. Is the text in the Bible accurate and reliable? 
for the Bible to be true, for it to be authentic and true, the words on the page, the stories it tells, the people it talks about have to be accurate. It has to be true. And so is the Bible text accurate? We're going to use a little bit of a video this morning to help us work through some of the accuracy and the reliability of the text. Would you watch this with me? Have you ever thought the Bible seems a little far-fetched? To some people, the stories of the Bible would be better suited to a supermarket tabloid than a book about life and God. Some of the most shocking claims in the Bible are what it says about itself. The Bible declares that the Word of God is alive and powerful, that all Scripture is inspired by God, and that the Bible is a light that guides our steps. These are lofty declarations. Can we trust them? For the Bible to be trustworthy, it must be accurate, reliable, and relevant. So let's take a look at each one of these criteria. First, let's explore the accuracy of the Bible. In order to trust what the Bible says, we have to be certain that the message the authors first wrote down is the same message we read today. To give perspective, let's take a look at some other ancient documents. Plato wrote The Republic about 400 BCE. The earliest copy we have is from the 9th century CE. That's a time span of 1,300 years between when the book was first written and when we have our earliest copy. Only seven copies exist. Julius Caesar wrote his Gallic Wars around 100 BCE. The earliest copy we have is also from the 9th century CE. That's better than Plato's Republic, but it's still a time span of almost 1,000 years. Ten copies exist. Homer wrote the Iliad in 800 BCE. The earliest copy we have is from 400 BCE. That's only a time span of 400 years, and 643 copies exist. Furthermore, all the copies are 95% accurate to one another. When it comes to the writings of Plato, Julius Caesar, and Homer, no one doubts the accuracy of these documents. Now, what if we applied the same criteria to the New Testament? The New Testament was written between 50 and 100 CE. The earliest copy we have is from 125 CE, a time span of only 25 years. Over 24,000 copies in Greek, Latin, and other languages exist, and the Greek language copies are 99.5% accurate to one another. If we can trust the accuracy of these other historical documents, we can certainly trust the accuracy of the New Testament. But that's just the New Testament. What about the Old Testament? For many centuries, the oldest complete Hebrew manuscripts were from 900 CE, which is a time span of 1,300 years from the completion of the Old Testament to our earliest copy. But in the middle of the 20th century, Bedouin shepherds and a team of archaeologists discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, Old Testament manuscripts from before the time of Christ. The quality control of biblical transmission from one copy to the next was so rigid that even after 1,000 years, the copies were word-for-word word identical with each other in more than 95% of the text, and most of the differences were in spelling. So, is the Bible accurate? After applying the same criteria to all the historical documents, it becomes clear that the Old and New Testaments are the most accurately preserved and verified documents of the ancient world. I know that contains a lot of data and a little tiny time frame, but we can see in just this brief comparison to other documents from the ancient world that the scriptures as we have them even today are incredibly accurate and they're incredibly verified as they compare to other writings of that time. 
And if you wanted to continue your search, you could get into the world of archaeology. And we know that archaeologists have made many discoveries that solidify the different people groups and the practices and the towns and the areas that are mentioned in the Old and, of course, the New Testament. Other ancient writings that even that we've seen here today, other writings that were outside of the biblical narrative testify to the things, the people, the happenings that were going on in Scripture. So just from a logical reasoning perspective, we can see a lot of good evidence that the Scripture we have is accurate and reliable. And if you have questions or thoughts about the New Testament, you can hop on a plane this afternoon if you want to and go to Jerusalem. You can do that. And you can walk the streets that Jesus walked. You can go to Bethlehem. You can touch one small portion of the wall of the temple that's been preserved. You can hop on Google Earth, and I recommend this. Hop on Google Earth and look at the streets of the holy city. We can verify in our presence the stories that we find in Scripture. And so the text that we have in just a few proofs is very solid. It's very accurate. It's very reliable. So what about its message? So if the data is accurate and the transmission from history to present is accurate, what about the story it's telling? One great place to look is if we've identified this story or these words as accurate, what do these accurate words say about themselves? What do they say about the story that they're telling? Let's look at a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to uh, young Timothy. So Paul, he was kind of an all-star of the faith in his time. He's post-Jesus resurrection. He's post-Pentecost. And he's going around. He's been called by God to to spread the good news of Jesus, of the fulfilled uh, prophecies to the non-Jewish people. And so he travels around. And this letter that we're going to read here today is to young Timothy. He's kind of an apprentice. He's a protege of the Apostle Paul. And he's teaching and leading Uh, people in the way of Jesus. And so as we jump into our text today in 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, just listen to what the Apostle Paul says about the Scriptures and about the story of God. Verse 14, he says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it. Uh, Just side note here, Timothy grew up knowing the Scriptures. It was a part of his childhood. Verse 15, it says, And from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. He says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So we can see within this text that the Apostle Paul is holding a very high regard for the Scriptures here. He uses the word holy Scriptures, meaning that he is holding them with a very high regard. They're a sacred item for him. They're a sacred thing for him. And we have to understand the Apostle Paul didn't understand he was writing the New Testament of the NIV, right? He was writing to a person in a place and a time. So for him to say holy Scriptures, he's looking back at the Old Testament canon and he's saying these holy Scriptures are to be revered and held high. In verse 16, we see that he believes that all Scripture is God-breathed or God-inspired. And so for Paul, this means that God is speaking through the prophets. He's speaking through the law of Moses. God is speaking literally through his words, through the Psalms, through the hymns. It's God's inspired word through men. That doesn't mean that man had no part, but that God was working through men to record his word, to his character, his will. 
He's also affirming that all of Scripture is God-inspired. And so that means that those hard-to-wrestle-with places in the story, those verses that we come to and we can't understand what God's up to, that those are also God's inspired words, that they are meant to be there. And finally, in this very short text, we see that, that the Scriptures have a purpose for our lives, that they are to teach, to train, and to equip us for every good work. So the message that is contained within the scriptures also has a purpose for every one of our lives. Sometimes we can view this book as as an anchor, can't we? Weighing us down with all of its rules and regulations and thou shalt nots. But in reality, friends, this is a lifeline. This is a portal at which we can view the most holy God reaching down and out after us. What did Jesus have to say about the Scriptures? What did he think? How did he interact with the Scriptures? Let's pick up in Matthew chapter 4 today. Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. It says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted, or tested, you might say there, by the devil. So chronologically, Jesus has just been baptized by John the Baptist, and he is been proclaimed but the spirit proclaimed that he was the beloved son of God and so he's going into the wilderness now to be tested or tempted and so this is very early in his ministry picking back up in verse 2 he says after fasting 40 days and 40 nights he was hungry the tempter came to him and said if you are the son of God tell these stones to become bread Jesus answered he says it is written Man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so we see here as Jesus is stepping into public ministry, as things are really beginning to take shape and change for him, that he is being tested. And as he's in the wilderness, he's been 40 days without food, and Scripture says he's hungry. It's like, well, yeah, he's almost starved to death at this point. And here comes the devil, and don't think winged creature with a snarly, snying voice. I dare say the tempter came in a subtle, persuasive voice. Said, Son of God, if you're the Son of God, what are you doing here? Why are you starving? Why Why don't you just remedy this? You can do it if you're the Son of God. And so this temptation is an undermining of Jesus' faith in the Father to provide his needs, to, to lead him and care for him in the call that lay before him. Jesus quotes here Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. And so it's interesting that at this severe point of testing, this severe point of trial, that Jesus quotes Scripture. Under that pressure, what oozes out of Jesus is Scripture. It's the word of the Lord. And not only is that significant, but let's look at what he's saying. He begins by saying, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. And that's pretty interesting because we do live on bread, right? Carbs, calories, sugars, we we live on bread. But he's saying we don't live on those things alone. We can have an abundance of bread. We can have abundance of everything we need, clothing, shelter. You think about all those things but there's still something lacking in fulfillment in our hearts, in our lives. We can get by on food and shelter and clothing, but don't we all recognize this longing that he's pointing to, this longing for more significance in our lives, for relationships, for meaning and purpose, for every one of our stories? 
How depressing is it? How hard is it to work through the anxiety of not having a purpose for every day? How hard is that? And we recognize the significance that Jesus is talking about here because you can think like, I I might love a good steak dinner. I might like good bread. But there is something categorically different that I enjoy more that's more fulfilling than when I get Eliza to come and give me a hug. There's something more there than bread alone. We might look at our homes or our houses, but isn't the time we spend with our loved ones infinitely more valuable than any structure that's keeping the rain off of our heads? What about our church family? Our church family, we could be anywhere doing anything this morning, but isn't this presence, worshiping the King of kings and Lord of lords together, isn't that infinitely more valuable? These things that we're talking about, we understand that true life, true flourishing, true abundance goes far beyond bread alone. And that's where Jesus goes next. He says, man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. For Jesus, the key to life is not carbs and calories. It's the story at which he's living for. And that's the story of the Lord. The story of a loving God pursuing redemption for humanity. The key to flourishing, the key to living a full life is living the story of God to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. To get outside of our own standard and our own story. Don't we resonate with that today? Do you have that need in your heart to be a part of something more? To give your life to a cause bigger than your 401k? Or whatever it is for you. The word of God, the story that this text is telling us confronts us. Rather, it pierces us in a very intimate place 2,000 years later because we all have that yearning for more. Not to live on bread alone, but to be a part of something more. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says it this way. It says, for the word of God is alive. So you think something's alive. It's active. It's moving. The word of God is alive and active. Active there is the word. We get the word energy. So it's powerful. It's effective. And so we see that the word of God is alive and it's active and it's powerful. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates. It goes through to the innermost parts of who we are, even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges. That means it's skilled in calling us out, isn't it? It's skilled in judging the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Friends, the Bible at home on your shelf is not a passive story. It's not just antiquated sayings and out-of-date ideologies. It's more. It's asking us a question of what story we're ascribing to. What story, when we lay our head down at night, when things are challenging, what story are we living for? Because not only is this text reliable, the story that it's telling intersects our lives and cuts across it. And we're confronted with a question. The story that this book contains addresses the brokenness it addresses the pain the hurt and the anxiety that every one of us encounters in our world today the story of a loving and just God who is working and giving and moving and has sacrificed greatly to see his creation renewed and redeemed that's the story that's contained in the pages of scripture that's the story that's confronting us with a question So do you believe the word of God is true? 
Yes. Yes. It's the standard that we're called to live by. It's the story that intersects our lives regardless of who and where we come from. But there's a more important question that we need to ask today, friends. What story are you living for? What story defines your life today? Think about it for a minute. Where do you go to find meaning and purpose for every day, for the grind of going to work and coming to home and cleaning the house and doing all those things? Where do you go for purpose and fulfillment? The world tries to tell us that meaning may come from our career or our status or who we are or things like gender and sexuality and power and prosperity. All those things are put forth by the world as a story that we can buy into. But it's empty and it's shallow. Because the story of God assigns each and every one of us value because of who we are in Christ Jesus, not because of what we can provide or what we can bring to the table. That's the story of the scriptures. That you are beloved by God. And he has made a way for you to be redeemed. That's the story. That's the story that we're called to live for. So what story are you living for today? The Bible is a story of God's immense love, of his never-ending pursuit to remedy his good and beautiful creation. That's what's in here. That's what we get to be a part of today. We're in the story today as believers in Christ Jesus. The Bible is a lifeline to those who are perishing. The Bible is a lifeboat to those who are drowning in sin. The Bible, the story of God is a lighthouse for those who are seeking. Will you get in the story today? Will you get in the story? Let's pray. Lord, um, in just a few moments, we, we can hardly begin to scratch the surface of what your word is conveying to us. But God, we, we recognize today, and, and I pray that if this is the beginning of a journey for someone that is questioning your scripture, your word, Lord, that your grace will grip them and call them, Lord Jesus, to explore. Lord, we, we Mr. Spurgeon used to say there's, there's no point in defending the Bible. It would be like defending a lion. If you just get out of the way, it'll defend itself. And, Lord, that's what we want to do. Lord, we want to get out of the way and let Scripture, let your story come alive in our hearts, Lord. Lord, we want to be in your story. We want to be in your story. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So we believe that the Bible is, is truly God's love letter to humanity. So I want to spend just a moment here to in, figure out a couple ways that we can engage this book. Because collecting dust on the shelf doesn't get us into the story or the story into us. So friends, what's a couple ways that we can get into this story, get this story into us? First, the real question is, or the real first step is no surprise, read it. And it sounds cliche, or maybe it's oversimplistic, but the first place that we can begin to engage this story, to engage in God's narrative, is to read his scriptures. As you sit down to read the Bible, if, if maybe if you've been exploring it for years or you're just getting ready to jump in, I encourage you to sit down and pray before you open the scriptures. Take a couple minutes to calm your mind, to put today's to-do list and today's anxieties aside, and just ask God to open your heart and your eyes to what you're about to read. Just pause before him and allow him to speak into your heart. 
and into your life as you engage the scriptures. If you're brand new to the Bible, I get a lot of questions. Where should I start reading the Bible? If you've never picked this up, you're in a great place today. I'd encourage you to start in the New Testament. Start in the Gospels and read and learn the story of Jesus and who he is and how he navigated in the story that he's living and telling. And as you engage the story of Jesus, he's going to quote back and he's going to continue to push you back into the Old Testament scriptures. So if you're wondering where to start today, start in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John was written that people might believe. Start there. If you want to read about what happened in the early church, read the book of Acts. You'll see how the Spirit goes forth and moves and works and broke free of the chains of the religious system in its day. Read the Scripture. Second, read it in community. And we're in an American individualistic culture, so when you say community, we all start getting a little itchy, right? And I'm with you. You get a little itchy when you start thinking about real, deep, meaningful community. But friends, this is a book of community. And so I encourage you to engage the scriptures in community. One way that we do that here at the Church of the Nazarene is through life groups. We engage in the fall in, in curriculum and studies working through scripture, and we have small group conversations in homes and in the church and meeting different places around the county. It's a place and a way that we can engage this story in community. In community. I would invite you, too, to don't hesitate to listen to the word. Listen to the word. If you have a smartphone, there's a hundred apps that will get you audio Bible for free. Listen to the word when you're going to work or when you're coming home or when you're mowing the grass. Any of those opportunities are ways that we can get this story into ourselves and we too can get into the story. It's okay if we don't catch every detail when we're listening because we're also reading and studying. But listen to the word. And finally, friends, pray the word pray the word. Now we talked about reading it of just opening up and beginning to look at the scriptures and pray and ask God to open our hearts, but it's okay to pray the words of scripture back to its author. There's great beauty in praying the Psalms back to our heavenly father. It's a way that will engage us in the story and it's a way that we can open our hearts before him and receive his grace. Pray the word, however you find it best to get into the word. Make it a priority in your life today, friends. Make it a priority. Get into the story, but it's most important that we get this story into us. Would you pray as we close today? Lord, we love you today. We're grateful for your word. God, the story of the Bible is a miracle that your grace has persevered and that as compared to ancient documents, Lord, it's, it's more accurate, it's infinitely more accurate and verified than anything else we have of that time. And so, Lord, I pray that today as we as your people, Lord, we would cherish your word and we would be people of your word, that we would learn and love you because you have first loved us. And it's in your name we pray. Thank you so much for listening today. You can email us at info at cotnaz.org for any questions about our church. When you're done listening, please subscribe to this channel for the latest updates and new episodes.